What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. What's going on in pop culture right now? We gotta talk about Madam Web. Everyone's talking about it. Not for good reasons. We'll get into that. Also gonna talk about Bob Marley One Love, the new Bob Marley biopic film surprise hit of this weekend. True Detective Season 4 wrapped up on HBO. Star Wars The Bad Batch Season 3, the final season, has begun on Disney+. And also La Seraphim dropped a new album, Easy. So make sure you subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod. See the links below. See the best of 2024 Spotify playlist for my favorite songs of the year, updated every week. Let me know it's good, and let's get into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of La Seraphim's 30p slash third mini album, Easy. La Seraphim back since their debut album, Unforgiven, last year, and most recently their first English single, Perfect Night, which became a pretty big hit for them. And I've been a huge fan of La Seraphim ever since that 2022 debut, just because I think they're like a really engaging new k-pop group and i think they're just really exciting there's a lot of personality in these members i think there's a lot of fun vocal talent and just the songs that you know hybe source music and lucera film are, are in the in the mix to make all the time i think are really cool they make a lot of big songs but also are not afraid to jump around genre especially on that unforgiven album last year they are dabbling in different types of sounds and i think they're a talented enough group that they can really pull that off and I think this is quite quite exciting, obviously. And Easy, unfortunately, I have to say, I, I was let down by this EP as a fan of the group. I think this is pretty easily their least interesting release that they've put out. I think the biggest sin of all is that this is a project that really kind of stamps down on the personality of all the individual members of La Seraphim. You think of someone like Chewan or Yunjin, they are big idols, like very talented. They can do a lot of things, but vocally on easy, a lot of times you don't even know who's singing because it's really understated and kind of stripped back. And I think the biggest uh, culprit of this would be the title track, Easy, ostensibly the biggest song on the project. But with Easy, it's really hard to tell who is singing those notes. I think this is just kind of a you know, basic trap beat with a lot of bland verses. The auto-tune dubbing that they do on all the members' vocals just really makes it sound more anonymous than it should, because this is not a group that usually sounds anonymous. You know, they again, they have so much personality and presence on the mic usually. I was really surprised. I think the Damn I Really Make It Look Easy hook from Jaywon, it's easily like the best like vocal moment on the song. It's like one of the best lines. That's cool. But like everything else about the song, just I, I, it's just too understated, man. It just doesn't pop like some of their other bigger songs do. And I, I think overall, Chaewon Yunjin have like the best lines, but it's not saying much. Like this is a song that I feel like really kind of reins in the girls. Like it really like prevents them from shining the way they usually do pretty effortlessly. So yeah, easy as a title track, I was pretty surprised by. The EP starts off with this, you know, intro track called Good Bones, which is kind of inspired by this Maggie Smith poem, uh, reportedly. And it definitely gives you the vibe of a poem. Poem, It's all the members kind of going through these uh, kind of like affirmations, you know, in various languages, Korean, English, Japanese. And they kind of all flock to the same refrain, easy, crazy, hot, I can make it. And they kind of like screech it out. Um, and it, you know, it's telling you or suggesting that there's going to be like a bit of like passion and like maybe like emo nature to it in some way because there's guitar and drums all throughout. Uh, good bones 
but it really just kind of fades away once you get into the actual like songs you're going to revisit on the release. The Seraphim, they're a group that often have really impressive uh, B-sides, you know, songs that people really like. Think of songs like Sour Grapes or Blue Flame or Impurities or No Celestial. Like, they don't, you know, get lazy with the B-sides. And I think actually the B-sides, once again, probably shine the most on this easy album here. You know, the song Swan Song, the drums immediately are just more a beat than the easy title track, and the singing just stands out more, I think partially because those vocal effects just aren't present. Uh, the song Smart, I also thought was vocally pretty fun. You hear some horns uh, for the first time on the release, kind of reminiscent of how No Celestial uh, had some horns. Also the production, again, kind of dabbling in some other genres. I think this one kind of taking a bit of like an Afrobeat uh, inspiration, which again, is a nice callback to what they did on Unforgiven with the song Fire in the Belly, which definitely had kind of like a Latin pop uh, flair to it. The last song, We Got So Much, also stands out just for being a bit more upbeat. So I think like these B-sides will probably grab people um, that are fans of the group, especially when you compare them to other B-sides of their past. But I think like the big flashy song, the title track, Easy, is kind of easily, <laughs> unfortunately, their weakest title track to date. And, you know, that's a high bar to clear. They got some big bangers, right, with Fearless and Anti-Fragile and Unforgiven and Perfect Night. Like, these are some, you know, big songs, big singles, big flashy songs. So it's clearly not what they were going for. It's a change. But to me, this change, I think, just doesn't quite grab you the same way. And I think because of some of those production choices with that vo those vocal effects, it also, I just doesn't think it stands out enough for something that's supposed to be a little bit subtler. So... Yeah, this is, a, this is a letdown for me, I have to say. Um, I'm sure they're going to release something again towards the end of the year. That's kind of the MO with Hybe uh, these days. Lots of EP drops, lots of single drops. So, I mean, Perfect Night was a sponsored song with Overwatch and Blizzard, and that ends up becoming a huge hit for them and a really big entry point as a, their first English song. So they can clearly uh, achieve great heights with seemingly... Uh, simple, you know, artistic releases, such as just one one-off song that's sponsored with Perfect Night. So I think they'll bounce back from easy, no problem. I'm not worried about it or anything like that. But just a bit let down that this is kind of their new release going into an upcoming world tour this year. It just feels a bit more muted than it should be. But of course, they have a pretty fun catalog already as a group that's less than two years old. So uh, I think they'll be just fine on tour but yeah, let me know. What did you think about Easy? Are you a bit let down by its kind of understated nature? Did you find more things to like for more K-pop reviews, more music reviews? Subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Star Wars The Bad Batch Season 3. The final season of The Bad Batch is upon us. Three-episode premiere out now on Disney+. Plus. The series will be wrapping up a 15-episode final season giving us a finale on May 1st. So a long runway ahead of us as we spend one last go around with the batch. And I have to say, between this three-episode premiere, what we've seen in the trailer, as well as what other critics have seen through seeing the first half of the season, it sounds like the Bad Batch is going to do what we wanted and tell a more serialized story as this journey we've been on with the Bad Batch wraps up. And I think that's very exciting because ultimately the Bad Batch is a show that despite being enjoyable as a 
you know, pseudo continuation of Star Wars The Clone Wars and just kind of giving us lore elements for the hardcore fans, you know, as they come. Despite all of that, The Bad Batch hasn't really gone through a lot of character growth and ultimately from a plot perspective has largely been unsurprisingly constrained in this Rise of the Empire timeline that of course we all know so well as Star Wars fans. So the show always felt like it was smaller stakes and really just kind of there as a good hang for those of us that are really in, in, into, into the whole thing, you know, as Clone Wars fans, Bad Batch fans, etc., and it sounds like we're going to get more serialized. We're going to have a lot more progression with our core batch characters. Seems like Omega and Crosshair are going to be a pair with this season. And I'm excited about that because I think where Crosshair has gone, arguably the biggest character arc on the show. And of course, the Omega character has been so central. I'm looking forward to some payoff there. And of course, the trailer has teased a very tantalizing thing. Of course, the reintroduction of Asajj Ventress, who we assumed had died in the Dark Disciple novel, which was a, you know, repurposing of a Clone Wars script that didn't get produced when Clone Wars was originally canceled. Ventress coming back, very tantalizing, especially something so monumental to happen on the Bad Batch. Very cool. Of course, in this premiere, we got to see uh, Palpatine. Always fun to spend time with him. Confirmed that, uh, you know, uh, Hemlock's plan, Project Necromancer, seemingly going to do a lot of fun lore elements for us tying together the emperor's pursuit of uh, cloning seemingly you know kind of obvious nod to stuff we've seen uh explored in the mandalorian as well as of course you know the sequel trilogy the rise of skywalker etc so uh definitely cleaning some stuff up there contextualizing some things always a good time with that really i'm hoping the character payoff is satisfying of course the loss of tech in the season two finale you hope continues to weigh on those characters so i'm feeling pretty good about where this show is is gonna go and it sounds like they're gonna go big but also stay largely focused you know and even if there's gonna be one-off episodes or one-off arcs it seems like we're all kind of barreling down this uh, path towards you know tantus and hemlock schemes and whatnot so i'm pretty into w where we're at and i feel like it's all kind of coming to a satisfying place i'm hoping we see more of commander cody this season of course his defection status was, was you know suggested uh shown in a sense in season two and in general it's kind of the fate of the clones as the empire moved away from the clones some of the best material in season two i really hope some of that stuff can remain in season three and it's not just hardcore plot 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 we'll see about that um yeah i mean episode two I, I enjoyed the nice nod i mean it seemed like it was black sun the very first scene the syndicate that uh you know Wreck wrecker and uh hunter go to but like it was a deveronian guy not, not a prince zizor type so i wasn't really sure but that's where my mind went cool to see those clone kids interesting introduction there and like a, a kraken monster at the end, it seems we're getting a lot of monsters, a lot of creatures uh, this season, as the Batches want to do. But episode one, I thought was pretty effective start because it was really Omega only, you know? And then Omega and Crosshair escaping so quickly at the end of episode three, kind of unexpected. But uh, yeah, I'm a fan of the Bad Batch. I'm, you know, I don't think I have high expectations for where season three can take us, but it just feels like it's going to wrap itself up in a satisfying way as as you can you know this has never been a show for anyone beyond those who already enjoyed clone wars and of course this would not be the first place you would begin 
if maybe you were interested in Clone Wars or, or dare I say Rebels, of course, you know, the, the great Star Wars Rebels. So, like, again, it's really like a show for some lore, for some hangs, for the people that are really in the weeds, like the hardcore heads. And that's not going to change with season three. You know, moving forward, we hope Star Wars Animation can give us another season of Tales of the Jedi. That's been hinted at by Dave Filoni. I wouldn't be shocked about that. But then in terms of an ongoing uh, animated series, I'm very curious where we go there. Will we perhaps get our first High Republic animated series as the Acolyte takes us there in live action? The comics and novels have been there for some time. That would be cool. Of course, anything beyond the general Rise of the Empire original trilogy prequel timeline that we know so well, of course, would be very welcome. All Star Wars fans agree about that. But yeah, we'll see about that. In the meantime, Bad Batch Season 3, very happy to be on one final journey with the squad. Let me know what are you most looking forward to seeing in Bad Batch Season 3. And for more TV reviews, more Star Wars, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of True Detective Season 4, aka True Detective Night Country. The series is out. I'm going to talk about the finale as well as the series as a whole and kind of relate it back to the previous True Detective seasons. Of course, True Detective, now a long-running anthology crime series grounded as a cop series and true detective season four kind of immediately stood out for for the first time grounding the true detective storytelling in the eyes of women in this case two police officers again played by jodie foster as uh, chief danvers and callie reese as uh, trooper navarro and yeah, I think this is a pretty engaging season of True Detective. There's been a lot of talk online. I think some of it kind of frustratingly about comparing True Detective to past seasons and some frustrations people have felt about how it's differed from the past, which I don't really understand given that the show is an anthology. I mean, even Nick Pizzolatto himself, the creator of the series, who was not involved uh, with season four, he took some kind of shots at Issa Lopez, the creator of Night Country, which I thought was a bit off base that being said you know it the night country story and then the true detective bones the true detective ip i don't want to say they they're in conflict throughout season four but they can definitely like kind of brush up against each other you know night country was conceived on its own and then hbo kind of pitched it helped mold it into a true detective story you know using that ip to help get the show off the ground it does make some sense but you know, hard detective work, quote unquote, not really the MO of True Detective Season 4. And to me, I didn't really mind because I was quite engaged by Danvers and Navarro. I thought Jodie Foster really given you the movie star performance for a movie star part. And Callie Reese, who I'd not really seen uh, act too much, I think really got to blossom as Navarro, as the Navarro character went on uh, her journey throughout the series. The way True Detective Season 4 begins, it's kind of like a soft fake out of what the show's priorities are going to be where you think it's going to be about investigating the Salal lab scientists and how they all died out in the ice and what was going on with that but really it was more about the Annie K murder and even more specifically this was I think a show about the individuals and kind of the journeys they're on as they're all broken people with a lot of personal baggage a lot of personal demons and how that kind of conflicts contrasts with the general vibe of Annas, Alaska, which is a place where a lot of people openly believe has some kind of supernatural element to it, has spirits just kind of uh, in and around the community. And of course, the 
a local like Inuit, you know, indigenous community is a big part of that, you know, and I think towards the end of the season, you know, the last two episodes where it's kind of revealed the conspiracy aspect of what's going on, where uh, the mine had been intensely polluting the land and the lab had been covering that up because the pollution was actually kind of serving the lab's research interests. And of course, this was to the great detriment of the community and really infecting the indigenous uh, community the most in terms of causing stillborn births and uh, cancers and just obviously poor public health. And of course, uh, Pryor's dad uh, as a corrupt cop was involved in some of this cover up, you know, I think, you know, a lot of that, like, kind of, like, core plot, like, determining what happened, you know, like, where is Raymond Clark, who actually killed Annie Kay, all those things I wasn't as super, like, dying to get uncovered, because I was more interested in kind of just, like, how the characters were uh, reacting to everything and keeping their lives together, lack thereof. Of course, young Pryor as well goes on quite the journey, literally killing his dad and then covering up his death. And I think some pieces of the series probably work better than others like Christopher Eccleston who I always enjoy of course amazing on the leftovers he doesn't have a whole lot to really do on the series as Danvers uh superior you know I guess the suggestion that he may be in and aware of the cover-up is probably the most interesting thing about him but it's never really explored too much also Fiona Shaw's character uh you know it's kind of this loner um widow I feel like there was more on the bone there, kind of a waste of Fiona Shaw. She's not really in the series all too much. Early on, I was kind of like a bit frustrated with like a lot of the time spent with uh, Navarro's uh, sister. But I guess once uh, that her she meets her fate and Navarro's journey starts to really like move forward, um, I think it made a lot more sense in how the series worked. I did appreciate in the finale that when Danvers is being like softly interrogated about what had happened by uh, other officers. It's very much framed just exactly how True Detective season one's like present day scenes were framed in terms of how they framed uh, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, you know? So that's a nice callback. Of course, Raymond Clark gives the biggest callback of all, dropping the time as a flat circle line to Danvers and Varro. I think this stuff with the Wheeler cover up, like it's not like really... I don't think there's like a, there wasn't like a whole lot really to it until all of a sudden like Eccleston is like, hey, I know, just so you know. And then it's kind of like juxtaposed where Pryor has to do basically his own version of it. So like ultimately, like I think like some of the beats are are more satisfying than others. I did kind of like the the revelation of what really happened to the Salal men and how uh, Navarro and Danvers uh, learn about that from the other indigenous uh, women when they kind of just tell them it matter factly that was pretty satisfying um you know i think some of the other stuff in terms of like trying to like all the time spent trying to get to the ice cave learning what the night country is some of the overt like ghosts like demon stuff it's like i could take or leave some of that like i think it just kind of was a bit slow although i did really enjoy when navarro sees the one salal guy in the hospital before he dies and he's like completely possessed like right out of a horror movie and the ending kind of I think kind of fits everything, right? Where it's, it's very um, ambiguous, you know, Navarro's fate, whether she is in fact actually alive or her spirit is just visiting uh, Danvers. I, I actually really like that ending. I like how a lot of stuff isn't super clear, but uh, the, the emotional journeys are, are the stuff that actually is like, I think the most satisfying, the most clear. So I think ultimately this is going to be like more polarizing in terms of how the plot has progressed and plot has resolved. But because that wasn't the primary focus of the series, I'm pretty into 
uh, this one overall. You know, I would say this is, you know, in line with True Detective Season 3. Um, certainly has some cool differences to it. I think I'd probably actually take this above True Detective Season 3, but of course Season 1 still being the best of the series. I'm hopeful for True Detective to continue to return as an anthology series. We've seen with Fargo on FX that the anthology format is a great way for creators to have fun and take chances and find interesting ways to tell dramatic stories in the loose definition of you know ip having that safety net for getting the show made so yeah we should continue to root for true detective to exist i think it's a pretty safe investment for hbo and season four actually is the highest rated uh version of the series season of the series just edging past uh season one in terms of viewership which is very impressive so yeah true detective season four true detective night country i think it was a really fun spin i was really happy that it wasn't just kind of playing the old hits again or trying to be a facsimile of a past season it's truly getting into the anthology format and to compare it to fargo you know this was still i think this still had enough dna of true detective to feel fun whereas fargo season four for example famously like took a lot of diversions and ultimately didn't pay off to the right degree so yeah true detective season four let me know what you thought of it and for more tv reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up welcome back to nostalgia dave here with a review of bob marley one love the latest musical biopic film starring Kingsley Benadire as Bob Marley and Lashana Lynch as Rita Marley. This film is directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green, his follow-up to King Richard from a few years back. And of course, this continues a consistent trend in the film-going world, which of course is the musical biopic film, a familiar uh, format for movies, and also a pretty generally fruitful and popular one as evidenced by many hit musical biopics of recent years, such as Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman and Elvis and Bob Marley One Love uh, really exceed those box office expectations this past weekend. So kind of continuing that trend. And it makes a lot of sense because, of course, Bob Marley is a music icon with a lot of fans, really generations of fans at this point. So his life is, of course, ripe for the music biopic treatment. Unfortunately, Bob Marley One Love is a lackluster and disappointing biopic despite the magnitude of Bob Marley's life as a cultural icon as a music trailblazer as a political force through his music and his message really none of that is captured in an effective way in the film Bob Marley One Love the film is very surface level it's very trite and frankly it just doesn't get deep enough into any of the things Bob Marley represented nor any of the personal aspects to Marley, his wife, or his band as well. It really doesn't spend any time getting into any of the various options you have in terms of trying to tell something meaningful, despite the fact that this movie is largely only focused on a handful of years in the late 70s, uh, as Bob's early 30s progressing to his late 30s, and when, of course, he tragically passes young at age 36 from cancer. Bob Marley won love, wastes, I think, a lot of time with these kind of flashback scenes, these memory scenes where we see uh, a child Bob as well as a teenage Bob when he's first starting out with this band, The Wailers. But it just feels like it's like taking time away from spending any time with adult Bob, played by Kingsley Benadire, and like we're just not getting getting anywhere. And to me, it's a big shame because Kingsley Benadire, he is... A great actor. I, I mean, I, I've been very interested in him ever since, of course, the big breakout a few years back when he played Malcolm X in One Night in Miami. Tremendous actor, 
Marvel, of course, wasted him with Secret Invasion, but he's a great actor, and he does a great job as Bob Marley, and Lashana Lynch does a good job with the material she's giving as Rita. It's not it nothing to do with the acting. It's really just a problem with the script. You know, Kingsley Benadir really imbuing, I think, the the mannerisms and the energy and the uh, performance uh, ticks that Bob had on stage, but also, I think, really genuinely uh, commanding, like, the screen with the way Bob spoke, you know, really giving you that, like, Jamaican patois. It doesn't feel like a ripoff or, like, any a joke in any way. I think it comes across quite genuine and comes across quite well. And uh, he's really rocking the dreads, I believe, via wig. And I think he's really kind of great as Bob. The problem is, like, they just don't get into much. Like, the the message of Bob and how that perhaps could relate to Rastafari culture, Jamaican politics, the wisdom of Marcus Garvey, the Halle Salise. Um, all these things are briefly referenced but never touched on in Bob Marley One Love. And to me, that's just disappointing because this was a story that had a lot of room to go in a lot of different directions. And and they said they decided to go right down the middle. They even nod at, like, infidelity. But they don't go anywhere with that, you know? Uh, They just don't spend any time with it. Thankfully, there is many Bob Marley songs in this because the Bob Marley estate was involved with the creation of this biopic. You have to imagine, creatively, they might have directed some things away from uh, you know where the writers maybe want to go to get more uh, invested in things. Nonetheless, you have all the songs, but they're kind of used as like crutches where uh, they'll be talking about like the sentiment of a song, like characters will be speaking about it. Next thing you know, we'll be hearing those lyrics like in the very next sentence as a performance comes up. So it's fun to be with the songs. I think it's fun to be with performers, but I was definitely let down because I just think there was so much more meat on this bone, you know, and maybe even if we had just not spent so much time with these kind of shallow flashback scenes and just spent more time in the present, which of course, again, like the late seventies or in the later years of Bob Marley's life would have been interesting. Cause like, he's just kind of an icon. He's just kind of a like massive superstar musically. And the Jamaican people just kind of love him, but like, we don't really know why because it's never like shown to us. It's only told to us as the movie progresses. So I, I was entertained by the things that are good about this movie, but really just kind of let down by the general structure and uh, script issues that Bob Marley One Love has. So, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy the, the movie did good. I, I'm not, like, tired of musical biopic films. I enjoy them. Um, and I think, you know, I'm not even, like a, like, a huge reggae fan per se. Like, I don't even know too many of Bob Marley songs beyond the big hits. I was still very interested in this story. Um, We'll, of course, be getting a lot of musical biopic talk coming soon. Of course, the Amy Winehouse movie comes out in May, and then Antoine Fuqua's Michael Jackson biopic comes out next year, which I think a lot of people have reservations about. So, uh, more to come. But yeah, uh, Bob Marley, One Love, you know, uh, disappointing, honestly. Disappointing for just not being as great as it could have been. And I think this was a story, this was a subject that definitely had that potential and we should probably spend more time with the Bob Marley documentaries that are out there. Some of the other reggae films that are out there because this really just doesn't delve too deep, but yeah, let me know. How did you feel about Bob Marley? One love. Did you like it more than me? Were you able to ignore some of those obvious faults and still enjoy the movie? Let me know. What's your favorite Bob song? 
And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Madam Web, the latest Sony superhero film from S.J. Clarkson. Of course, Sony making their Spider-Man adjacent superhero movies due to their hold on the Spider-Man film rights. Madam Web following in the footsteps of the two Venom films as well as Morbius and yeah, Madam Web is a huge dud. The best thing about Madam Web was the press tour we just had featuring star Dakota Johnson. Really just not giving a F, playing into the joke. The meme that we had from one of the lines in the trailer that was just horribly written and expository. That line is not even in the movie. Something else that's not in this movie would be watching Sydney Sweeney, Isabella Merced, and Celeste O'Connor actually play the Spider-Woman that we know they will be playing as hinted in at the trailer. If you've seen them in the trailer as their various Spider-Women selves, that's all you see. That is the only time we see them in this movie. This is a horribly written, uninteresting, incoherent at times, and just kind of bland origin story to very obscure superhero characters in the Spider-Man adjacent world. This movie is so ill-conceived and just has really nothing inspiring about it. There's really nothing to recommend about it and it really feels like a superhero movie that would have came out 10-15 years ago. And somehow Sony is going to be the one feeding the streets with superhero movies in 2024. Madam Welp will be followed up by Kraven the Hunter and Venom 3. Whereas Marvel Studios is just dropping Deadpool and Wolverine, and DC is just dropping Joker 2. I would not be shocked if Sony recalibrates how they treat the Spider-Man adjacent world following this year. Just because, like, it's not like Kraven the Hunter looks too good either, and Venom 2 was pretty darn bad, even if both those movies are pretty successful, so... The whole Sony project and whether we're eventually building up to a Sinister Six movie that may or may not ever feature Spider-Man, played by Tom Holland or someone else, I don't know. Uh, the Sony project remains weird, but it's not even Morbin time. Like, there's nothing, like, fun and dumb about Morbius the way the internet created in the aftermath of Morbius, which, of course, also was a huge dud in its own right. So, Madam Web, like, I think the whole conception of this character... Ma the Madam Web character, Cassandra Webb, played by Dakota Johnson, is just such like a BC-list character in the Spider-Man overview that like you would have to have a really inspired take, I think, to make a movie people want to care about. And the way they portray uh, Webb's precog, seeing the future, seeing the past, visionary powers, it's very incoherent, it's hard to follow, it's very visually uninteresting as a film. And the whole plot of this movie really just involves... Webb, as well as the you know three young girls, Sweeney, O'Connor, and Merced's characters, watching all of them, they're basically just running and fleeing from Tahar Rahim's villain character. There's really not a lot of action to this movie, and it's kind of just a lot of fleeing and running, and it's truly like the very beginnings of an origin story. Obviously, it's easy in hindsight to look back and say, huh, Sony, you just had a huge hit with Sidney Sweeney and Anyone But You, of course, the highest grossing romantic comedy film of the pandemic era, a movie I liked quite a bit. Why didn't you just make a Spider-Woman movie with Sidney Sweeney versus try and set it up uh, with this movie first? Obviously, that's plenty of hindsight, um, but yeah, it just doesn't come across well. Sweeney will be fine. Isabella Merced should be fine, too. She gets a redo with superhero movies uh, playing Hawkgirl in the new DC universe and also be on The Last of Us Season 2. So 
I think her career continues apace as well. Been a fan of hers since Sicario. And uh, Celeste O'Connor, I didn't know too much about, but I actually kind of, I liked her in this movie as well. She was pretty fun. Um, Adam Scott in this movie, who was introduced as Cassandra Webb's paramedic co-worker. That's uh, Ben Parker, a.k.a. Uncle Ben. And uh, we're watching... <laughs> We're watching Emma Roberts be pregnant in this movie, and she's giving birth to Peter Parker. Didn't see that one coming. Shout out Sony. Really threading our needle with that one. Um, in terms of the movie just kind of being like really ill-conceived and, and uh, ill-produced, though, Tahar Rahim's villain character, who I mean, I didn't even comprehend the, 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 the villain's name, Ezekiel. Ezekiel's whole performance by Rahim is clearly like all ADR. Like they redid all... The dialogue it sounds really kind of artificial and distorted and i think they just kind of re-recorded all new lines after they filmed this and it just it comes across horribly like he makes no impression at all he's the most one note one-dimensional villain you could ever get in a franchise movie like this and i like Tarahim. i mean he's a great actor he was good in napoleon he was good in the mauritanian like, he's good but like he has no, nothing with the script gives him any opportunity to save himself. Like he just doesn't acquit himself well at all. Dakota Johnson, also someone I like. Um, when the role is right, the lost daughter, Cha Cha, real smooth. She's a good actor. She has good comedic timing. I think the stuff in the baby shower in Madam Web is actually pretty funny on Johnson's part. But she's really just kind of sleepwalking through this movie. A lot of wooden line readings. Again, the action is so uninteresting. There's really just nothing to rally around. With Madame Webb, again, it really feels like a relic of the pre-MCU modern-day superhero storytelling mode. And this is a troubling trend that we continue to get with the Sony films following Venom 2, following Morbius, and who knows, maybe Craven as well. So, yeah, this movie's just a big dud. Honestly, tough L for S.J. Clarkson, who at one point was attached to make Star Trek Four. This is her first you know, big movie role after being an accomplished TV creator for some time. And yeah, I mean, this does not uh, <laughs> reflect fondly on her. Also, this movie is not even going to do well at the box office, unsurprisingly. C-plus cinema score, which is the best, biggest failing grade you can get from a franchise movie with that metric. Box office is like 20-something million over a six-day extended opening, you know, after premiering on Valentine's Day. There's really nothing good going on with this also one very specific note i have to say is there's a moment where webb cassandra webb is buying a ticket at grand central in new york city to go north to poughkeepsie for a funeral and the train she rides on which is the train you see in the trailer uh that train is supposed to be an mta line the hudson line going north a train line i've ridden countless times in my life and the train is just not accurate like the interior with those seats and everything that's just not accurate to what those trains are and that immediately stood out to me as someone who was ridden on that train before. Obviously, that's not a real criticism of the film, of course. There's plenty of real ones to make, but it just stood out to me. Also, another classic example in this movie of Cassandra Webb, a paramedic working in New York City, somehow has this immaculate, massive uh, apartment studio or one bed that she lives in by herself. It's like just the affordability of that seems very uh, incongruous to her actual uh, character's uh, job. Either way... Uh, yeah, this movie is just a big old dud. There's really nothing to recommend about it. It is not Morbin Time. And yeah, I don't think we're getting a sequel. I don't think we're going to see Madame Webb as a character again. Maybe the Sydney Sweeney Spider-Woman comes back around. We'll see. But 
yeah, let me know. What did you think of Madam Web? Did you have anything you liked about it? Because I didn't really have much to latch on to. And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do it for the pod this week. Next week, we have a Megapod, one of the biggest pods of the year, almost surely. Let's get into Avatar The Last Airbender. The live-action remake on Netflix is finally here. we got to get into that. Netflix, Drive to Survive, season, what is it, season six, season five? Whichever season it is, got to get into that. Also, Drive Away Dolls, the new film from Ethan Cohen, got to get into that. Lulu Wang's Expats is wrapping up on Amazon Prime Video. The Inventor's Perfect Days is finally out. Oh yeah, and some music we got. Twice, Eric the Architect from Flatbush Zombies, and MGMT back after several years. Very exciting. A lot of big things to get into. Make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. Get the pod any way you can. See links below. Get the Spotify playlist. Let me know it's good, and I'll see you next week. And-